0: Listening to Ohio v the world, an Ohio history podcast, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher, and don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at Ohiovtheworldpodcast dot com. Now, here's your host. Alex
1: Hasty.
2: It's hard to tell. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 15, our final episode of season one of "Ohio V the World." We've had such a great time bringing you the show. Your guys' response, the number of listeners we've, we've been getting, It's just been overwhelming, and we thank you so much for that. Um, we're gonna go on a small hiatus. We're gonna do some some actual historical writing for Timeline magazine, the only Ohio history magazine in the world. Um and we're gonna be back in middle of November, it looks like, to bring you season two, another awesome season. So send us your show ideas. You can email us ohio at gmail.com. Um also we're gonna be giving away shirts. We've got some awesome new uh Ohio V The World t-shirts we'll put pictures of them up on our Instagram which is Ohio V the World podcast at Instagram and on our Facebook page the first 3 people to share Ohio V the World in this episode on your Facebook page we will get you a free t-shirt so just tag Ohio V the World uh, and then tag episode 15 and share that with your Facebook friends and then we will contact you and get you a free shirt so uh, again, thanks to Mysterioso Rock Art, our friend Rob Hedge, for getting those shirts together. This is episode 15, and it's Ohio versus Hollywood. And today we're talking with a good friend of ours, rock and roll star Jerry DePizzo, saxophone player and guitar player from the Columbus-based band OAR. Been together for 20-some years. Um, They're going on tour again this fall. They're in Columbus at Express Live on October 19th. So get your tickets. Again, OAR, October 19th at Express Live. And Jerry sat down with us today to talk about Ohio versus Hollywood. JD is a Youngstown boy. Um, And we're going to talk about the brothers from Youngstown, the Brothers Warner, the Warner Brothers that we all know and love. Um, They're one of the first families of Hollywood. They come straight from Youngstown to change cinema forever as we would know it. Jerry's going to talk to us. We're going to focus on Jack Warner one of the original vanguards, one of the original studio heads in old Hollywood, and we'll walk through those years of how they came from from basically nothing in Youngstown, immigrants, Polish-Jewish immigrants from Youngstown, to become the most powerful men in Hollywood and change movies forever. And Jack Warner is no saint. Anyone who watched Feud on, on FX this season, Feud, Betty and, Betty and Joan, about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, Jack Warner was a major character, played by Stanley Tucci, a great actor, um, and he did a great job playing Jack Warner, the studio head who, who would do anything. He's a flawed character. You might not even be rooting for him by the end, but his life story and the life story of the Warner Brothers is a, is a story that Ohio is not very often given credit for, but they do come from Youngstown, and they exhibit a lot of those characteristics of grit and determination and hard work that were instilled in them in Mahoning Valley. So we'll talk about the Warner Brothers, let's focus on Jack Warner, and we'll talk about Youngstown, old-timey Youngstown, around the turn of the century when they grew up in the 1900s, the 1910s, and the 1920s. Our beer for the episode today, uh, it's one of my favorites. Jerry, our guest, is a big Rheingeist guy. Can, of course, Rheingeist is one of the big breweries here in Ohio, out of Cincinnati. Go to Rheingeist.com, they've got an amazing brewery and an awesome uh, Tap House, Three Levels, Rooftop Bar, um, and Over the Rhine, just just north of downtown Cincinnati. Um, you can find them on Elm Street, 1910 Elm. Uh, just, just go visit them. They have an awesome selection of beer. It's an adult playground up there. Jerry's a big Rhine Dice guy. And so we were drinking some peach dodos, some gosas, sour beers. Uh, one of my favorites, only 4.4% alcohol, but a great beer as we kind of wind down the summer here in September. Um, it's just a very refreshing beer, again, tart, uh, it's kind of got a little bit of a peach aftertaste, not that salty like some sour beers can be, um, but really refreshing. Goes great with any of your summer barbecues. Um, so before it gets too cold, we ask you to crack open one of these sours from Rheingeist, the Peach Dodo. Again, check them out at Rheingeist.com. And if you haven't had a sour beer, go find a Peach Dodo. You can find them in most of your grocery stores here in Columbus, obviously down in Cincy and Dayton. Um, and I'm starting to see them even more in, in Northern, northeast Ohio. So, again, it's a Peach Dodo from Rheingeist. It's a Gosa a sour beer, a German sour. Go check that out. Low alcohol content, um, but a great beer. We're going to be talking about the Warner Brothers today. The most recent, probably the best historical movie I've seen in the last year or so, the Warner Brothers brought us this summer Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan movie, awesome movie. Uh, go check that out. It came out in July about the evacuation of the British and the French soldiers in 1940 from the beaches at Dunkirk in France. Um, awesome movie, and again, just go, go check that out. But the Warner Brothers have been giving you historically accurate, socially conscious movies for nearly 100 years. Um, they basically started making their movies right around the end of World War I. So it almost has been 100 years, and that's what this episode will celebrate. And we're talking about Jack Warner, who's the head of Warner Brothers. I mean, I'm talking movies like Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, Casablanca, the best picture winner that we'll talk about. Streetcar Named Desire, Ben-Hur, Maltese Fountain, Cool Hand Luke, Willy Wonka, the late Gene Wilder and Willy Wonka, still a great film. The Exorcist, My Fair Lady, Jack Warner heavily involved with. Also involved with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, winner of the best picture in the early 60s. Um, And another movie at the end of his career, Bonnie and Clyde, starring Faye Dunaway, and Warren Beatty, an incredible movie also um, that you guys really need to go check out. I remember watching it in a film class in college, um, and another great Warner Brothers movie. Jack Warner was Hollywood. He was old Hollywood. We're going to talk about the studio head, the dad joke-making, offensive, rough, with the slick back hair, Jack would work with the actors and the producers and the journalists to bring Warner Brothers to the top of old Hollywood. Growing up in Youngstown, um, we'll talk with Jerry about his family, which came to Youngstown and came to America about the same time as the Warners. Grew up, they, his family grew up doing almost the same jobs as they did as grocers and butchers, shining shoes like Jack Warner used to do in his paper route. These people, these Warner Brothers and the DePizos, they came from nothing. And built themselves, and we'll talk about how Youngstown was an incubator for that kind of opportunity. But enough with the previews. It's time for our feature presentation. So, lights, camera, action. It's episode 15 Ohio versus Hollywood.
1: To the Warner Brothers, to whom is due credit for this, the beginning of a new era in music and motion pictures, I offer my felicitations. And my sincerest
2: appreciation. Jerry DePizzo is from Youngstown, Ohio. He lives here in Columbus. He's been in the band OAR for nearly 18 years. They all met at Ohio State. Uh, they all came from, from Maryland, most of them. Jerry came from Youngstown, joined the band, and they've had a string of hits. I mean, I saw they had a Spotify song that has 20 million plays. They sold out Madison Square Garden. They have a Red Rocks live album. They're one of the biggest bands to ever come out of Ohio. And we're really cool of him to join us today. He's a good friend, a great guy. Uh, and a hell of a musician. Jerry and I went to lunch a couple months ago, and he had a great idea for a show to talk about old-timey Youngstown, and to talk about Jack Warner, the butcher's boy, the immigrant son from Youngstown. who becomes the king of Hollywood. And we'd also be remiss to not thank Jerry for doing our bump music, our, uh, our transition music here today for this episode. Much appreciated. Jack Warner was an innovator. He brought talkies to the screen. Talking Films was a creation of Jack Warner and the Warner Brothers. We asked Jerry about about his family because they had a very similar experience to the Warner Brothers as they moved from Italy to Youngstown at the turn of the century.
0: Hey, buddy. How you doing? Doing good.
2: Doing good. We're here to talk about some old-timey Youngstown today. Um, Your family, you know, we're talking about Jack Warner and the Warner Brothers today, but your family shares a pretty similar history to the, to the Warner Brothers and the Warner family. Tell us about the De Pizos, you know, their experience from moving you know, from Italy to Youngstown.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of parallels between how my uh, ancestors a couple generations ago and the Warners immigrated to the U.S. You know, Warners, Polish, Jewish folks, uh, De Pizos, for the most part, especially on the De Pizzo side, everybody's coming from Italy. They go to Youngstown because they knew somebody. Uh, My great-grandfather literally had uh, the name and address, just like Ben Warner of a guy he knew, and uh, got to Youngstown and went to look for him. Uh, That's awesome. Most everybody settled in Briar Hill. Briar Hill at that time uh, is the area of kind of where Youngstown and Girard, everybody could walk to work. Nobody had a car at that point. These are are very people, these working class, these are very simple people. Uh, you ended up in a very close proximity to where you worked. Most of my family at some point ended up working for uh, Youngstown sound Zealand too. My, my great grandfather, my my father's grandfather or my father's grandfather, comes goes to work at, for, during uh, the night shift. Uh, during the day, he works at Motorelli's on Dearborn Street. Uh, they teach him not for money, just to feed him feed himself during yeah. the day shift. They te- teach him to be a butcher. Um, at that time in downtown Youngstown, uh, there was a, like a bazaar, like an open air market. Uh, after a while he, he, uh, started a meat market, a meat stand there. I mean, the Warners were butchers as well, right? I mean,
2: they, they probably rubbed elbows.
0: Probably. They were, uh, probably, yeah, yeah. Uh, competing
2: for, uh, for business at that and point. And Jack Warner calls himself, you know, the butcher's boy. Youngstown, Ohio, in Northeast Ohio, in Mahoning County, is was well, the steel capital of the world like Jerry talks about, positioned in between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, between Chicago and New York. It was the industrial heartland of America, a city that went from 1890 having 33,000 people to upwards of 170,000 people, a six-fold increase by 1930. That's the time that we're going to be focusing on, about 1900 to 1925 in Youngstown, the glory years of Youngstown, a city that America has forgotten. But at the turn of the century, Youngstown was growing. It was once that had the highest per capita of home ownership in this country. It was called the City of Homes, they actually used to call it. Kind of a weird name. But we asked Jerry about Youngstown around the turn of the century. What was it that brought so many Central and Eastern European immigrants? Like Jerry's family that goes to work at Youngstown Sheet and Tube in the Briar Hill, a very Italian area of Youngstown. And families like the Warners from Poland. What brought them to the Mahoning Valley? And what was it about Youngstown at the turn of the century?
0: It's, at that time, it's the largest steel-producing region in the world. That um, northeast Ohio, northwest Pennsylvania, uh, that area is basically equidistant from Chicago to New York. Mm-hmm. You have Carnegie Steel fueling everything near Pittsburgh. It's also equidistant between Cleveland and uh Pittsburgh, it's right smack dab in the middle. All these folks heard of stories of work and opportunity, and uh, away
2: they went. Yeah, I mean, there's a giant population increase, and we we you know detailed it before we we talked to you. But I mean, it goes from thirty thousand to one hundred and seventy thousand people in twenty or thirty years. I mean, it's come down since then, but at its peak, it's near two hundred thousand people live in Youngstown proper. It's pretty incredible.
0: Absolutely, yeah. My my grandfather's generation. Um, that was the population. It was, yeah, about (laughs) 187,000
2: people. Yeah, wow. Jack Warner's born in 1892. He's 11 years younger than his oldest brother, Harry Warner. Harry would run the studio for decades. He would manage the books, manage the affairs of the studio. Jack ran the day-to-day. There were 12 children, the Warner Brothers. Jack was the youngest. They moved from Poland to Canada, And then to Youngstown in 1896, the same year as the president, William McKinley, from Niles, Ohio. We'll talk about Niles coming up. William McKinley becomes president the same year the Warners moved to Youngstown. McKinley was a native of Niles, which is kind of northwest of Youngstown, in between Youngstown and Warren. We asked Jerry about the early years for Jack Warner and the Warner Brothers, and how they went from low-class immigrants to the kings of the Hollywood Hills.
0: Uh, Jack was the youngest of eight. Uh, he was the look at me, look at me attention <laughs> grabber of the group. Um,
2: like most younger children, like are. most,
0: uh, he never went to high school. So he had a you know grade school, middle school education at best. He was on the streets. All of them, I think, were were out there uh, just finding ways to to make a buck. They were sitting there shining shoes along alongside their old man, uh, carnival barkers. Um, you know anything and everything under the sun to make put a couple dollars in the pocket. Sell ice cream,
2: anything. Yeah. He starts doing like some vaudeville, going around the area, doing singing and dancing numbers and stuff like that. And he always talked about that in his older age. Yeah. So
0: they started by um, Nickelodeons. They were they they went and they saw these five. They would pay a nickel. They'd go in and see these very simple early film. Yeah, it almost, shorts. Yeah, it'd just basically. be like somebody dancing on screen. It'd just be a moving, moving picture. Exactly. Maybe there's a guy playing some piano or something like that. But, but, but something very, very simple, like that. Uh, the brother Sam, who is the dreamer, he's the idea guy, uh, sees the kinetoscope. He sees uh, an Edison invention that uh, is, you know, a film projector, basically. So. The brothers Warner all get together and they go, let's pull everything together as a family, everything we got, let's put it together. We're gonna buy the one of these kinetoscopes. Uh, we're gonna have it comes with this this film, the Great Train Robbery. <laughs> so it comes, it's like a you know you get a it's a, a package d-
2: deal a DVD player with like yeah. a DVD. <laughs> That's awesome. So they pool, I think what is it like a thousand bucks or something? That's all their money. I know that they get a fa- they get close.
0: Yeah, they get close. They get they get about hundred fifty bucks. Amongst everybody in the family, including including their parents, they're still short. So what do they do? Uh, they they sell old, they pawn up old Bob, and Bob was the horse that uh, you know pulled the the carriage for all their deliveries for, for the grocery for store. the grocery yeah. store. So they got 150 bucks for old Bob, <laughs> and uh, they went and they bought that uh, that kinetoscope. So they figure out pretty quick that that uh, repeat business is going to be real difficult to get. Sure. So they go on the road. Just like uh, uh, any any real troubadour, you get out there on the road and you and you hit it. So, they're going you know to the little you know the steel pockets where there's business. Uh, McDonald, Newcastle, they're in Niles. I'm sure they shoot up to Pittsburgh. All the little pockets around, they go and they where they can make a couple bucks. And they show their one movie. They go up, they show their one movie, the little pop up shop, and out they go you know, by night nightfall I'm sure.
2: And they open a theater in Newcastle. I always thought it was funny, um you know, they don't have any chairs. What what how did the, what do they do to, to seat people, do you remember? Yeah, so so there was a there was a code that said you
0: can't have more than ninety nine seats in a in a theater or you had to have all different kinds of things uh, permits and- permits and exits and all kinds of things. So they had 99, they figured they're going to have 99 seats. <laughs> they don't have 99 chairs. They don't have the money for 99 chairs. So they have a, a mortician down the street, and he goes, hey, if I can borrow the funeral homes, uh, 99 chairs from them, you can come in anytime, watch any movies you want. So oh, awesome. that guy got free tickets.
2: Around the same time the Warners are contemplating their move to Hollywood, a dark time descends on Youngstown. So many immigrants had flooded in due to the work in the steel factories. The time following World War I was a very racist time in American history. Youngstown was not spared. In fact, it was almost as bad as it could be up north. In 1924, we're going to look at the Niles Riots, the riots between Italian-Americans, immigrants, against the KKK, which had taken hold in northeast Ohio, and had used Youngstown as an example of this country going wrong of immigrants taking jobs. We looked at, you know, we got to give a shout-out to Ashley Zamponia King, uh, who wrote her thesis on this this topic called America May Not Perish, which is about the Italian-American fight against the Ku Klux Klan in the Mahoning Valley, when Ashley was a grad student at Youngstown State University. Uh, Ashley is a history professor now at Brookdale Community College in New York City. Um, we reached out to her about her thesis, and she... Uh, You know, it's something that you should read if you can get your hands on it. But the 1924 Niles riots, they're somewhat timely now as we look at these events in Charlottesville um, and the rise of neo-Nazis and the KKK here in America. In Youngstown, they took them on, counter-protesters and immigrants banding together ultimately to, to what I would consider to be to defeat the KKK, at least defeat their influence when tens of thousands of people took to the streets with weapons and guns and battled each other over these same issues that we're fighting today in places like Charlottesville, Virginia. We asked, Jerry, about the 1924 Niles riots and their effect on the Italian-American community and the influence of the KKK in Northeast Ohio in the 1920s.
0: Yeah, so if you were to equate these, these riots with the KKK to... Think gangs in New York, okay? KKK is more of the Daniel Day Lewis nativists. Okay? Yeah, the Know Nothing Party. Yeah, yeah, the Know Nothing Party. They're, they're, they've been here longer. Um, they, they're, they're frustrated. The, uh, the immigrants are, uh, you know, coming into the country. They're taking the, the, you know, as a big part of the labor force. They're taking jobs. They're changing culture. There's certainly changing culture, you know. Uh, there's the temperance that in the Prohibition that uh, the KKK is pushing for. So there's this big clash in Niles, and <laughs> basically, uh, you have the KKK on one side, and then you have the Knights of the Flaming Circle yeah, on the other side. Yeah, what a name! Side. What a name! It's, it's like it, the that'd be a name we could use today. The Knights of the Flaming Circle. I so, love it. And these folks are they're immigrants, they're Catholics, they're they're bootleggers, they're they're you know. All these folks with these loose ties join together against the, the KKK. Uh, in uh, May of '24, uh, there's a KKK march in Niles. Uh, violence erupts all over Niles. Uh, you know they try and stop the march. They try to stop the march. It's you know, it's bats. It's knives. It's Mass violence—it's—it's—it's it's, it's terrible, terrible stuff. Um, the KKK planned to have another march November in November of uh, 1924 later on that year. Uh, obviously, uh, Knights of the Flaming Circle—not a big fan of that. A lot of other people aren't a big fan of that. They plan to have a counter protest, uh, in you know, numbering in the like ten thousand. Uh, to combat it, even so much so that uh, October twenty ninth of that year, Niles Mayer's home is is bombed because he refused to revoke the KKK's permit because he he allowed them to have the, the march that's coming up. He behind. allowed he was going to allow them to have that 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 march in November. Well, just that concentration of immigration labor, I think, was the real catalyst for it. Uh, you know that Mahoning Valley is is the the epicenter of steel production not only for the United States, but for the entire world at that time. So just the massive immigrant labor force was really, um, you know, a powder keg. Uh, yeah, so if you can derive a silver lining from this, it's that the, the influence and the stranglehold of the KKK was significantly diminished after these riots. People had had enough of it. You know, I'm sure they had experienced uh, loss, death, um, you know, a lot of the same parallels that we're experiencing right now in Charlottesville. Uh, and if we can take anything away from it, it's that a- awareness and um, the the other side of it, the fact that, that, that people don't, that refuse to bow down to folks like the KKK. Right. It, 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 it know, diminishes their power and their influence
2: over over people. Those riots in Niles, Ohio in November of 1924... Involved 35,000 protesters and KKK members, 25,000 from the KKK, 10,000 members of the Flaming Circle, um, which was an anti-Klan group, as Jerry said. They rioted for 18 straight hours on that day. Ohio's governor, he called in the military, he declared martial law. People were forced to remain in their homes for 10 days following, following those riots on November 1st. It's important to remember the immigrants and counter-protesters from Niles, Ohio in 1924. These ideas of white supremacy and the Ku Klux Klan, we've been facing these people down in Ohio for over 100 years. Whether it's Niles in 1924, or protests in in 2017, or giant rallies that the KKK used to hold at the Statehouse in the 1990s in Columbus or in Cincinnati, we've stood up to them in the past, and there's no reason to believe that we can't follow the example of the Niles counter-protesters from almost 100 years ago today, to turn back these idiots and their prehistoric cause. Warners begin showing films, create their own distribution company, the Duquesne Distribution Company. They run into an Ohioan who has a monopoly on the move the fledgling movie industry, the moving picture industry, as they called it then. Thomas Edison. We talked to Jerry about Thomas Edison, who basically created the moving picture, how his stranglehold on the industry forces the Warners from to leave Youngstown and to leave Northwest Pennsylvania and move out west to start and try and seek their fortune as the Warner Brothers film company in Hollywood. So Thomas Edison,
0: uh, who really... In Ohio. You know, who who, who uh, really was the genesis for all of this technology, uh, figures out pretty quick that if you own the rights to all the films, uh, your competition's get to get real thin real quick. So he works with a lot of the different production houses in the region... To basically work in an agreements and gobble up all the rights, all the intellectual property, to all,
2: almost on the, the whole all East, East coast. coast, the entire
0: yeah. East Coast, they, they he has a grasp and a stranglehold on. So the Warners very quickly are uh, uh, really hurting for business and grasping at straws. It's a great, it's a great way to get started. They figure, well, if we can't get other people's movies, we need to we we need to make our own, in order right. to make a buck here. So. That's what they start to do, and uh, that's really the genesis. Their battle with Edison here is really their genesis to head out west, get out from the stranglehold of Thomas Edison and his companies, and yeah. uh, make a name for themselves.
2: Before we get into their careers, we got to understand who the Warner Brothers are. There's Harry, the oldest brother, 11 years older than Jack, the subject of today's episode. Harry ran the books. Harry was the leader of the family. Harry and Jack did not get along. They did not see eye to eye. That's a lot of times a younger and older brother can, can be. There was Albert. Albert was kind of the soft-spoken, he's a bigger guy, kind of the glue that kept the family together. And Then there was Sam Warner. Sam was the visionary. It's Sam that's responsible for talking pictures, the talkies that we'll discuss today. Sam was also the bridge between Jack and, and Harry. They were oil and water, as Jerry describes them later on, and it was Sam who kept them, the family together, kept those two being able to work together. Towards the end of the First World War, Sam, the visionary, and Jack, the youngest firebrand Warner brother, they decided to move out to California to begin scouting, not just the movie industry out there, but places that they could set up their own studio, Warner Brothers. We talked to Jerry about the the move to California when Jack and Sam move out there. Begin making films, and become the Warner Brothers movie studio that we all know today.
0: I mean, they're just they're there, hopefully making payroll, basically, uh, uh, you know, film to film, week to week on everything. Uh, you have uh, up until that point, they're really they're they're making their money on Monty Banks comedies, really, just like uh, and those were like. A, Monty Banks was a, an Italian immigrant, uh, silent film star. If if you heard to hear him talk, it was like a like a stereotypical uh, like an Italian uh, like pizza maker. Hey, what's the matter with you? Uh, you know what I mean? That, that's kind of how this guy talked. So, uh, silent film star, and he would just do kind of like slapstick, kind of very animated physical comedy. Right. Uh, We're an animated people with our hand gesturing. Yeah, yeah. they take a big gamble. Uh, James uh, James W Gerard U S Ambassador to Germany sure uh, uh, has his his uh, autobiography My, My Four Years in Germany uh, kind of talks about uh, World War One his negotiations with Kaiser Wilhelm II the last German Emperor uh, they they buy the rights to this for fifty thousand dollars they make a war movie they make a war movie first movie that's nationally distributed uh, which is a big big deal they're breaking ground in the film industry. Uh, but it takes basically everything that they have to do it. Yeah. So they're basically left with nothing at the end. So what do they do? They find a dog. <laughs> and, in, and to put it in a, a, a Jack's wor, words, I think he put it best, he, was, he, he said about Rin Tin, Tin he was like, he was the only leading man in our company's history, or hero if you prefer, who had no flaws whatsoever and never gave a bad performance. <laughs> So they start making money on basically dog movies. It's dog movies and it's, it's, it's a Xerox copy every time. You have man and dog, you have villains routed and then uh, justice prevails. Yeah. And they have they do this
2: uh, upwards of 20 times, 20 rentin tin movies, 20 ten. but that's how they're paying the bills in the early 1920s. Yeah, and we still, you know, we still have heard of Rin Tin Tin today. No, I've started Homeward Bound. I mean, all these movies are all derivatives of the Rin Tin Tin 20 you know, Warner Brothers movies. Benji. I saw Benji in the theaters once when I was a kid. And that's not cool. I'm just letting you know that. <laughs> it's more of a Garfield band myself. <laughs> like Jerry said, the Warners are struggling. It's a tough market to, to make a movie studio, a major movie studio out of nothing. They move out from Youngstown to California. And they're living paycheck to paycheck. Jack talks about that his, his assistant used to drive him to work and drop him off behind the studio and go drive the car around the corner because their debtors were at the front door, looking to either serve Jack with some sort of court filings or some debt that was owed by the studio or one of his brothers, or just to repossess the car that they had. Times were tough for the Warners. Sam Warner had married a, a Paramount actress, a young, much younger woman. He was about 40. She was about 20. In her family, who didn't necessarily agree with the wedding due to the age difference and the fact that she was not Jewish, but also they found out she thought that he was a big Hollywood big shot, and she finds out that she's making more as a B actress for Paramount. She's working on the Siegfried Follies, which was a big deal back then. She told Sam, he's got to quit. Come to Paramount. We can get you this job. But Sam finds some technology. In the mid-1920s was the birth of Radio. Everyone across the country is beginning to buy this technology. There are radio shows. You can begin to play music over the radio. Baseball games would ultimately be played over the radio. But the talking radio that was in almost everyone's house by the mid-1920s becomes a craze. Movies are still silent. There's music played during them, but there's still silent films. No one had made a talking picture. They said it would never work. Sam Warner, the visionary of the family, and Jack Warner decided to take a chance. They talked their brother Harry into it, and they go through General Electric, through Western Electric in New York, had something called Vitaphone, a new technology. We asked Jerry, what was Vitaphone, and how did it change not just the Warner Brothers lives forever, but all of our lives as we enter the age of the talkies?
0: So Vitaphone connects and syncs sound with film. Up until that point, what you had was film... And then you had a guy in an orchestra pit or guys or folks mm-hmm. playing the score associated with the film. And now if you think about that, if you're in New York City and you're in a big theater and you have the Philharmonic or have a great big orchestra doing performing, uh, it's probably a spectacular sight and a spectacular sound. If you're in a very small town like, say, Niles, Ohio or Youngstown, Ohio, maybe you don't have a... 60-piece orchestra that you could have accompany your film. So you have one guy that's kind of thumbing his way through it, sight reading at an out-of-tune piano. (laughs) Not the same experience. Mm -hmm. So the Warner Brothers being in the film business figure they need to, one, be able to expand their experience and bring it to more towns, more cities, and they need to do it in a more, provide a way that makes it more affordable for the folks who are going to have the theaters and things. So they have this technology. That basically has two motors to it. When you turn on the projector, uh, one motor runs the film, and then the other motor drops the needle onto a uh, a record, and the record
2: plays. So the record is synced up to the actual pictures, and almost kind of like what we do today. I mean, it's. It's a very, yes, very early, simple, crude version of what we do today. The Warner Brothers purchased Vitaphone, they gambled on their future, and they gambled everything. The cost was about $7 million. No bank would give them a loan. They had to go to loan sharks. People giving them loans at 30 40%. $7 million back then in, in the mid-1920s was about $140 million today. Sam Warner oversaw the making of a movie called The Jazz Singer. It would be the first talking picture. Despite the naysayers, The Jazz Singer became the most successful movie of all time.
1: The introduction of the Vitaphone has been received both by the public and the artistic world with a great deal of interest. A description of this creation from a more or less technical point of view may therefore be a of interest to you.
0: Yet. there's literally the time before the jazz singer and the time after jazz singer when it when it comes to cinema before that you had silent pictures no sound whatsoever again live person accompanying with a with a score uh the soundtrack then you have uh the ad the ad, the advent of sound in cinema. Which is basically an orchestra playing, people walking, doors shutting, not there, no one hearing an individual's voice on film. Right. The jazz singer is the first time you hear an actor sing and talk on film. It happens to be Al Jolson, and at the time, uh, had the 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 moniker of the world's greatest entertainer. You know, the jazz singer is the story of a cantor. Uh, somebody who sings in their, their, their church uh, and who wants to be a jazz singer, wants to sing a kind of a forbidden music. And, um, you know, you hear Al Jolson sing, really lament about this. And after his performance, people would just roar, stand up in the theaters and just explode in exuberance. I mean, the the reaction to it was unlike anything that, that uh, really film or entertainment had seen the the entertainment value of talkies exceeds all of that and, and really absorbs all that and and it happens anyway. It's the, the demand from the public for the entertainment uh, really fuels and drives uh, the you know the installation of these sound systems in theaters all
2: throughout the country. Any discussion of Al Jolson or the jazz singer, is not complete with talking about Jolson as the entertainer. He often did bits in blackface. This racially insensitive method that he used, we talk about looking back at Jolson and how we have to see him through a current lens. You know, at, at his time, Al Jolson had the moniker of the
0: world's greatest entertainer. Enter, entertainer. He's a vaudeville guy. He's a song and dance guy. He's He's larger than life. He really... Um, had a, a magnetic personality from what I watch. He did. You know, you watch, you watch some old cuts in, in film of, of his and it's snappy. Whatever it was, he had it. He really was quite an entertainer. Um, he entertained a hell of a lot in blackface. Yeah. And, um, you know, going looking at that through today's lens uh, is very difficult to watch and uh, really understand or comprehend how that could be something that was acceptable in his day.
2: All the other major studios pan the jazz singer and talking films, the Warner Brothers pressed on, Sam Warner especially, working night and day through an illness, migraine headaches, constant fatigue. We have a quote here from Jack Warner who talks about that daring move to enter the age of talking pictures.
1: General belief at that time that motion pictures had progressed as far as they could go as a medium of dramatic expression and satisfying entertainment. My brothers and I believed otherwise. We were determined to break the barrier of silence and bring full life to the screen by giving it a voice. To this goal, we dedicated the full resources of Warner There were setbacks and discouragements, and a great deal of criticism from doubters who were annoyed with us for not letting well enough alone.
2: When the Jassinger premiered in October of 1927, the Warner Brothers, Albert, Sam, Jack, and Harry, were not present. Sam had fallen ill in California. They, They raced out to Hollywood to see their brother, who was possibly on his deathbed, according to the papers, and they didn't make it in time.
0: Yeah, so through the whole creation of the jazz singer, Sam Warner, it's his, it's his baby, it's his project. He's popping aspirin uh, like the Chiclets, and by the end of it, he his body wears out. He he falls ill. He's in the hospital. His brothers are in New York. Harry, Albert, Jack, they're there getting ready for the premiere. They're getting ready for the entire world to see their greatest creation at, to date. The jazz singer, Sam Falls, they all get on a train and they head back west to be by his side. Which would take you know at least probably a week. Back Quite then. a bit of time yeah. at that point. It's not like hopping on a plane and you'll be there in a couple hours. It takes you know, days if not weeks of time to get over there and they don't get a chance to say goodbye and they don't get a chance to get him the care that he needed in order to save his life. So the jazz singer, while it really catapulted the Warner Brothers from a struggling middle-of-the-pack studio to one of the top studios, if not the top studio, studio in all of Hollywood, uh, you know they don't really get to enjoy that success because at the same time, uh, they had just lost
2: really their, their guiding light and their, their, their brother, Sam. The death of Sam crippled the Warner Brothers. He was the visionary. It was his idea to buy Vitaphone, to make the jazz singer. He was the one the go-between between between Harry and Jack, who were polar opposites. Although they had the most successful movie premiere of all time, Jack Warner says that the jazz singer was, quote, an empty victory for us. There's no doubt that the jazz singer killed Sam. Something wonderful went out of our lives. ¶¶ Following the jazz singer, the Warner Brothers were a success. They were rich. Finally, they had made it. All the other other studios had to fight to keep up. They tried to get their own talkie pictures going. The Warner Brothers moved forward with with a music label that's still around today. They moved forward with Merry Melodies, the cartoons Bugs Bunny, all those great characters that we know. It was the golden age of Hollywood in the 1930s and early 1940s. Jack Warner is the head of the studio, making incredible films. We asked Jerry about this golden age where Warner Brothers is finally on top of Hollywood.
0: Right after, in the, in the late 20s, right after The Jazz Singer, you have uh, Lights of New York. You have the first all-talk picture. Okay, and Then you have On With The Show in 1929's first all-color film. These are big grand spectacles people are just amazed by the technology it's big it's sound you have uh, shortly after that you have um, Leon Schlesinger producing 1930 1930-33 of the Looney Tunes and the Merry Melodies yeah uh, cartoons you, the depression really sinks in people aren't feeling the glitz and the glam anymore the big grandness their their own struggles. Are taking over it's grittier it's edgier um, they start to produce really gritty and edgy films gangster films uh, Little Caesar starting uh, comes out in 1931 that's uh, starring Edward G Robinson Public Enemy with James Cagney yeah, I'm a fugitive okay. from a Chang gang that's really with Paul Mooney in it these are films that are socially conscious they have their finger on the pulse of society and what, what people are feeling, what they're
2: dealing with, the struggles that they're going through. And Warner Brothers did that, I feel better than any other studio. I and mean, they, they really knew what was going on out there. They were um,
0: at around this time, they get the, the, the title of a,, you know, a studio with a conscious. And they really do try, there's a focus, you can see from the films of, of really telling the story of uh, the people that they're entertaining.
2: Thanks to the leadership of Harry Warner, Warner Brothers was making movies that challenged social norms, that talked about what was really going on during the Depression. And they certainly attacked the rise of Nazism in Germany. They were the first studio to pull out of Germany in 1934. Despite all the business ramifications of, of pulling out of a major European country, we asked Jerry about Their anti-Nazi stance, their anti-isolationist stance, and how the Warners pioneered this movement to combat Hitler through film. So they are the first studio to pull out of Germany.
0: Now at the time, Warner Brothers is doing big business. Half of their box office, half of their gross sales are coming from the United States. The other half of their gross sales are coming from outside. Germany is a big industrial power. They're making a lot of money in Germany. Um, Their they're, they're head of business over in Germany in 1933, Philip Kaufman's the name, uh, he's the head of sales, and he was killed in an alleyway. He was beaten to death by Nazis. Um, obviously, with the, the Warners' uh, Jewish faith, uh, this resonates very close to home. They pull out of, of, of Germany. They're out completely. Not only do they do that, um, and through, also, I think it probably doesn't hurt that Jack Warner has a working, if not a friendly relationship with FDR. All the Warners helped to get him elected uh, and get him on the uh, the, uh, the Democratic ticket at the, uh, at the DNC um, in 32. In 32 yeah. Yeah. You know, they start making very pro-American, uh, pro-war, anti-Nazi um, movies Casablanca probably one of the greatest love stories of all time heard of it yeah once or twice uh, wins the award for, for, for best picture
2: 1942 I think
0: 42 well 42 it came out it was previewed in November 42 uh, it was actually it, it had a national distribution in January of 43 okay. so it was in the 43 Oscars and uh, so it wins Best Picture. H.B. Uh, Wallace, producer of the film, the guy who had his fingers in everything for the film, gets up out of his seat to go accept the award. Jack Warner's already on stage and accepts the award. <laughs> Gasps are heard. HB's trying to get there. He's trying to get, get, out, get into the aisle or whatever. It's, it's something that H.B. never got over, and I think a lot of people never really forgave Jack for.
1: Universal led the color division with Phantom of the Opera. Jack Benny sponsors another best to Jack
0: Warner for producing Casablanca.
2: Isolationism, America First movements, were all the rage as World War II started. A majority of Americans did not want to be drawn into another bloody, endless European conflict. The Warners were actually dragged before Congress one week before Pearl Harbor, a committee saying that they were making warmongering films. Harry Warner testified before that committee, and one week later, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. We asked Jerry about Warner Brothers during the war years and how they made a difference, how Jack and Harry and the entire team teamed up to bring down Hitler.
0: The Warners really felt like they had an obligation to sustain national morale, to keep morale up, to keep people feeling like being involved in the war was a good idea, even when um, it was really hitting close to home.
2: Yeah, I mean, half the people probably opposed any kind of involvement, maybe
0: more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you want to draw parallels between the Warners, Youngstown, and the DePizzo side— of things. My grandfather DePizzo was a medic in World War II. Uh, He landed on Utah Beach on D-Day. Certainly uh, served his country admirably there. You know, the war affected everybody and affected everybody in a very intimate and personal way. Everybody knew it. I think probably at that time, everybody knew somebody that was directly affected and probably lost somebody in the war. and so it was important to keep morale up, and and you know, in the eyes of a lot of people, to, to keep America in the war and
2: in fighting. What kind of movies did they make then during the war?
0: They they made, um, you know, very you know like pro pro American Yankee Doodle Dandy was sure, was, yeah. was was a, was a movie that they had come out come out with. I watched that one. Uh, Sergeant York, the, the Seahawk, yep. uh, Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Uh, for that movie, uh, Hitler was not a big fan of that, that one, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Jack Warner was actually sent blueprints of his house anonymous, anonymously in the mail. It said, we know where you live, or something like that. Yeah.
1: Become the watchdog of democracy, the guardian of equal rights for all, a warning to destructive interests the world over, that Americans will stand alone if necessary in support of true democratic government, and against the hates and prejudices of a world gone mad. Ladies and gentlemen, I am to have the privilege of presenting to you each week the introductory forward of the Lone Defender. The star of which is a box, probably the most famous box in all the world. Ring, ring, ring. You're not most of you are familiar with Winston's Rins history. How, during the Great World War, he carried
2: dispatches through the firing line, risking his life daily, in order that he might do his, for his Following the Allied victory in World War II, the Cold War set in. The United States and the Soviet Union became embittered enemies anti-communist movements were all the rage. Congress, people like Joe McCarthy, they began dragging Americans that they thought were of questionable patriotism in front of the committee. This is where the division between Jack and Harry grew even deeper. Jack was incredibly anti-communist. A strike that happened during this early Cold War years uh, by the Actors Guild and the writers sent Jack into a rage. It was around the same time It was about the same time that Jack Warner appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee, that famous Red Scare Committee. We play you a quick clip of Jack before the committee when he named names.
1: Termites have burrowed into many American industries, organizations, and societies. Wherever they may be, I say, let us dig them out and get rid of them. My brothers and I will be happy to subscribe generously to a pest removal fund. We are willing to establish such a fund to ship to Russia the people who don't like our American system of government and prefer the communistic system to ours.
0: But there's a SAG strike going on, right? Yeah, there's a strike for about a
2: month, right? Yeah, so So,
0: everybody's out of work. Jack Warner's frustrated because he can't get a darn thing done. And he sits before this House of Un-American committee.
2: The basically McCarthy's committee, and he he what does he do? He names names. Jack Warner was never forgiven in Hollywood when he named the Hollywood 10. Movies like Trumbo have been made about it. These people were arrested, Hollywood writers, certainly with leftist leaning political views, but who cares? They were rounded up and arrested, blacklisted in Hollywood, thanks to people like Jack Warner. We asked Jerry. About Jack Warner's role in those dark years in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, Jack Warner was a son of a bitch, yeah. really, when it comes down to it.
0: I mean, he, he really was. I mean, the guy could have done 10 minutes warming up for Don Rickles and Ronnie Dangerfield. He was a joke a minute type of guy, not necessarily the kind of joke that you want to laugh at, but the dad, jo- dad jokes. Dad jokes. The, the jokes you have to laugh at, like, ha, 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 like one of the, you know, 10 or 11 of those. But at the same time, he was both really the vanguard in the last line of defense for Warner Brothers. He was the guy that went in there and got his hands dirty. Uh, he was, you no, know... Nothing got done. No films got made without his at least him yeah, being yeah. involved. Through his own account, he had a hand in every film that had ever been made at Warner Brothers. <laughs> I'm saying for better or for worse. For better or worse. Yeah. But but really, but when it came down, the big business part of it, you know what I mean? Harry handled the money. Sam was the idea guy. Albert was the glue that kept them all together. And Jack was the guy that went out there and sold it to
2: everybody and got the job done. He- we have no illusions about Jack Warner. We talked to Jerry about what kind of guy he was. A lot of people in Hollywood had nothing but bad things to say about him. His offensive jokes that he would make. He once met Albert Einstein. He said, I have a theory of relative, relativity, talking about working with his relatives don't hire him, or when he met Madame Shanghai Shek, and he said to her that he forgot his laundry ticket.
1: Of course, before I go in and further, I want to destroy the apprehension that I am supposed to be a comedian. I read in one of the trade papers that I come in the have four or five hundred more stag jokes. I wasn't, didn't know there were going to be women here. And I, and I saw them come in. I can always tell a woman from within 50 paces with or without these glasses. Therefore, I must put those jokes away, which I already have. And uh, I happen to hear one in a, (laughs) you have to be very funny when you're at a bank, because at times you must be serious when the banker is trying to be very funny. (laughs) I found out both pay very off. The banker is a very charming fellow, and so is the man who's trying to get the loan, if he's lucky.
2: These kinds of offensive things were, were commonplace for Jack a guy who had all the power, nobody could stop him, including his brother Harry. We talked to, J- we talked to Jerry about, about Harry Warner and his relationship with his brother Jack following the war in the 1940s and into the 1950s. Jack and Harry are oil and water. Harry is the
0: older brother. He's the oldest of the family. He's the patriarch. He's the one that's responsible for everybody. He is the one that has sound judgment. He's the the oak of the Warner Brothers family. Jack's the younger brother. He's the look at me, look at me, I need attention guy. You know, I imagine early on, Harry's out there dotting the I's, crossing the T's, making sure they have money in the bank and things. Jack's out there whining and dying and wheeling and dealing, folks having the time of his life. Frustration's on both sides. Jack can't get done what he wants to get done. Harry's frustrated because his unhinged brother's out there uh, going crazy. As they both become more successful, that relationship becomes far more strained. It becomes far more difficult. Uh, for them to deal with probably the loss of Sam uh, you know was one of, the, one of the brothers that really probably helped keep them together keep everybody moving in the same direction Albert was, was the brother that was the most uh, integral to that he really was the glue he was the, 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 the voice of reason between the two of them
2: 1956 when Jack did the unthinkable, when he went behind his brothers' backs and he double-crossed them. We talked to Jerry about how Jack Warner tricked his brothers into selling their shares of Warner Brothers only so that he could take full control. That's exactly what he did in 1956.
0: In 56. uh, Jack really puts pressures on his brothers. Hey, this is a great time to sell the studio. We got there's we can get a great price for it. Uh, we'll all be out. Uh, now's the time. Now's the time. Uh, he did a lot of work to convince his brothers Albert and Harry that it was the time. So, 1956, the brothers put their shares up for sale. With Harry and Albert don't know is that uh, uh, Jack has a, has a, a behind-closed-door deal with Serge Semenko. He's the head of the bank of Boston that he goes and organizes a group to buy about 90% of the stock that the all three Warner Brothers put together and, and, and sell. So, so Serge and his gr- uh, group buy 90% of the stock. A day later, he sell, sells that stock back to Jack Warner, cutting his two brothers out. Jack Warner then uh, makes himself uh, president of Warner Brothers and is then free to run the studio all by himself without his brother's influence. They're out completely? They're out. They're completely out. They have cashed out. Uh, they got paid handsomely, I imagine, for, for it, but they're out and they were double-crossed by their
2: brother Jack. Jack Warner was the undisputed king of Warner Brothers, the studio head of all studio heads. Sam falls ill with a stroke shortly thereafter, so angry he would never speak to Jack again. His wife claims that Jack killed him, basically. But it's during this time that Jack Warner becomes the famous Hollywood person that that people know today. In the 50s and 60s, we, we play a clip of him looking back on his career all the accomplishments. Jack eventually sells his shares to Warner Brothers in the 1960s. And he says, who would have thought a butcher's boy from Youngstown would end up with 24 million smackers in his pocket?
1: We have been committed to an unwavering faith in films since the earliest Nickelodeon days, in spite of the many crises and periods of panic which crop up In such a a fast-moving field as ours, again, a factor which is unsurpressed in achieving box-office results—that is none other than a fine motion picture. Such a film will bring people to the theater even when such other diversions as sports, television, motoring, and economic problems are present. We believe—and still believe—that ours is a basic entertainment art and industry; that its brief 50-year history was has merely been the curtain raiser for a fine future. We've been fortunate that our company's experience has spanned most of the history of the motion picture industry. For example, 25 odd years ago, we were engaged in a dubious experiment which was doomed to last less than 90 days of existence, even if we could make it work. So said the wise men. A year later, we introduced to the public the sound from the screen and the wise men gave Warner Brothers and Vitaphone very little time. Fortunately for all of us, they were wrong.
2: Jack Warner dies in 1978 at his home in Beverly Hills. We asked Jerry one last time, what was it about turn-of-the-century Youngstown that helped make Jack Warner, that helped make the Warner Brothers, the kings of Hollywood?
0: Yeah, you know, know, Youngstown, I think, brought two things for Jack Warner. One, uh, the opportunity. Um, It was a place of opportunity. In in, in interviewing my grandfather, DeCapua, my mother's father, he said, if you couldn't, you know, around the time when he grew up, when his father grew up, if you couldn't make a buck in Youngstown, you could not make a buck. I mean, it was, people were crushing it, making really good money. You know, day labor is making good money. People in the grocery stores are making good money. Everyone's doing okay. The town's growing just crazy. So there's not, there is, it's a place of opportunity. It's a place of hope for people. But you got to grind it out. These are people when they first came. Uh, uh, ben Warner and his family when he brings his family to Youngstown, they don't have hardly any means. They live in the same they in store. They have their grocery storefront. They live in the back of it. You know what I mean? Uh, my my grandfather great grandfather DePizzo, he opens his first grocery store. He uh, buys a property. He builds a grocery store. They live in the house attached to it. This is, you know, these are people that are they're working class folks. They have to grind it out. That work ethic propelled the Warners to the top of Hollywood. It was the grind. It was the uh, willingness to do more than everybody else to get it done.
2: From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight, making history. There's so many books you need to see. I like reading, and I like reading. The tip a canoe in to from the Queen City to Lake Erie blue. Edison and a man on the moon. So many books which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation for the final episode of season one is The Brothers Warner, written in 2003 by Cass Warner, the granddaughter of Harry a great retrospective of all their films and accomplishments, Jack Warner's treachery crossing his brothers there in 1956, and basically their rise from Youngstown to the top of the movie industry. Written in 2003, it later became a documentary made by Cass Warner, uh, which is available on Amazon, again, called The Brothers Warner. If you don't want to read the book, the documentary from 2008 is fantastic as well. Again, a special thanks to Jerry DePizzo of OAR, You can see them at Express Live on October 19th, Thursday night, in Columbus. Go check them out. Guy really knew his stuff. We're going to have to have him back for a future episode for sure. This will be the end of Episode 1. We are announcing Season 2. We're going to launch in November. We've already started lining up some interviews. Uh, We're really looking forward to that, so stick with us. We take a little break, uh, and we'll move into Season 2 of Ohio V. The World. Don't forget, the first three people to rate and review the show and share this episode on Facebook, uh, we'll get a free t-shirt. So don't forget to do that. Share episode 15, rate and review the show as a whole, uh, and don't forget you can always email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Also, we're going to have t-shirts for sale. we got a whole new batch coming in. Uh, they're just 20 bucks. We should have every size. So, again, if you want those, email me. We'll put them up on the website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com, shortly Um, and hopefully you can buy them there. Again, thanks to Mysterio, so rock art for putting those on. Uh, We can't wait to bring you guys another season. It's been so much fun. Appreciate all of our guests, all the authors, historians, uh, Jerry DePizzo, all of our friends who came on to make our, our first season such a success. And look for us in just two months. We'll be back with a whole new batch of episodes about Ohio history. So that'll do it. This has been episode 15, Ohio versus Hollywood. Take it easy. We'll see you soon.